just, oh, I mean, that's such a bummer, isn't it? Um, I just want to say, Nate, you've been a gift to me personally, and I think uh, to the church as well in your worship leading. And maybe we could just thank Nate for all the worship leading he's done. But I've said this before, he stepped in at the perfect time, and he came to Hillside at the perfect time, but uh, he actually works in Sioux Falls, his wife Julia, it makes the most sense for them to be in Sioux Falls, she's at that point in her uh, studies with medicine, Um, and USD does that to us, it draws people in and then it kicks them out real fast, and so um, we are bummed to see Nate go, but really, um, I think, I'm personally very excited for whoever gets to have you next in their church, but also just that you get to worship with people where you live. And um, so I just wanted us to know that this is Nate's last Sunday. I said this last week, but Noah is going to start leading worship for us regularly, which is exciting as well. And we are ascending church. We send people. We... Um, if we tried to hold on to everybody, we'd be 2,500 people probably because we just, people come and then they go. And, um, and so we want to minister to people while they're here, but it's okay that they leave uh, even though it wrecks our hearts. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Don't feel bad. <laughs> there are other people doing this to us too. I actually said to someone a few weeks ago that this has just taught me I can't get close to anybody. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Don't put that in your notes. All right. Well, I would really like to pray for Nate and Julia. I told her she didn't have to come on stage because, um, you know, we don't all want to be up here. But uh, let me pray for Nate as, as they take off. And um, again, thank you so much for, for your willingness to lead. Father, thank you for Nate. Thank you for Julia. Thank you for their commitment to you. And not just to Hillside, to you and to your church. And so, Lord, we're just so grateful for them being willing to lead, for them being willing to take time out of their life to help lead us into worship. And Lord, thank you for the way that you've gifted him. Thank you for his commitment to you and to the church, wherever he is. Father, we pray today a prayer of blessing. God, would you bless them as they um, start in Sioux Falls, as they get planted in their apartment there, as they get planted in a community there. Lord, would you bless them with strong friendships? Would you bless them with a big ministry? And God, as we send them, Father, would you just go with them? And um, Lord, I, again, I'm just so grateful for his desire, for Julia's desire to honor you. Father, I pray that they would just find an awesome place to serve you in um, Sioux Falls. And God, um, pray that you'd bring them back someday, even just to visit. Um, But Lord, um, would you go with them? We love them so much. We love you so much. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Nate. The other thing I wanted to mention to you this morning, uh, well, first is this. We are in sort of our summer uh, schedule which means we have one service at 10 o'clock. You're at it, so you knew that. Um, we will move again in August back to two services at 940, or 9 and 1045. Um, but because of our summer schedule, we also change what we do for Sunday school for kids. And so during the summer, we offer a, what's called a kids message that goes up to age kindergarten, uh, kindergarten age kids, and they go downstairs. And so if you're in that age range, three to kindergarten, um, up to three, you can go into the nursery. Three to kindergarten, you can go downstairs for a kid's message. You join us for worship and then go down for that part. If you are a kid that doesn't fall into that age range, 
we would encourage you to take notes as I'm speaking today. Um, this is not just for big people. The Bible isn't just for big people. Um, and so we would encourage you to take notes. Uh, we have notes on the back counter at the information desk. You can go right now and grab those if you're a kid. Um, and then take those notes when you're done. If you turn your notes back into the information counter at the end of the service, we have a prize for you. Um, and so we would encourage you to do that with us. The last announcement is this. These baby bottles, which you guys maybe have heard of, we have maybe four more still at the information counter. Um, we are uh, doing a fundraiser with Vermilion Right, for, right to Life, and the goal is to fill these with our loose change, uh, dollar bills. You can even put checks in them. And this goes to help um, raise funds for Vermilion Right to Life. The goal is to... Um, care for women, to care for babies. Um, and so if you are interested in helping with this, this is the last week that you can do it. The, these are to be turned in next week, which is Father's Day, which maybe is another announcement to some of you because you were like, oh, whoa, next week's Father's Day. Yeah. Uh, next week, Father's Day, these need to be turned in. So you can either turn them in during the week here to the office or you can bring them in next week on Father's Day and drop them at the information counter and we will make sure they get to the right people. So that's all of the announcements for this morning. Um, I would like for us again to turn to Matthew chapter 5 verses 38 to 42. And today we're continuing in a series. If you're new with us, we're probably uh, six weeks into this series. Um, and this series is called Unworldly for the World. It comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And it's six statements that Jesus makes where he says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And the goal here is that Jesus is specifically talking to his disciples, and he's saying, If you are going to be my disciples, then you're going to look different than the rest of the world. And I want to key in on that just for a second. And I know I say it every single week when I preach these messages, is Jesus is talking to people that are followers of him. I say it all the time, but your faith in Christ happens by having faith in Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not by your works. But then Jesus takes his disciples and he says, if you're going to be my disciple, this is what you're going to look like. You're going to be different. You're going to be unworldly for the world. And it's hard for us to recap all of the places that Jesus has taken us up to this point, but for today's message, I want to remind us that drawing closer to Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, drawing closer to Jesus and being, becoming conformed to his image very often challenges our deepest held beliefs and values. When we draw closer to Jesus, we are really very often challenged in our deepest held beliefs and values. And today's message definitely is going to push on some of us. And some of you are like, Robbie, all of Jesus' messages have pushed on us. I agree. But today's maybe is really hard because much like the people in Jesus' day, we are looking for a district attorney version of Jesus. We're looking for Jesus who is going to get all of the people that have made our lives hard and he's going to take care of them. We love to stand on our rights. I do. Anybody else? Remember that the Jewish people of Jesus' day were under the authority and rule of Rome. They were looking for a savior to wipe out Rome. This is historically what is happening. 
They're looking to stand on their rights as God's chosen people, and they wanted vengeance against anyone who would offend them. And my guess is that all of us have desired vengeance at some point in our lives. And I think that it's important for us to understand that God has placed a desire for justice in each of our hearts. That's not wrong. God has placed a desire for justice in each of our hearts. So, when we face injustice, it is always very tempting to want to take justice into our own hands, isn't it? Think with me of a little kid. Maybe you are a little kid. Think about yourself. When he or she hits, or gets hit, I'm sorry, what do they do? They immediately hit back, right? Let's take justice into our own hands. Think about marriage for a second. Now, hopefully, I'm not talking to the little kids. Maybe I'm talking to some of the rest of us. When one spouse causes the other spouse pain, then there is very frequently a response of the curse of what we would call silent treatment for a couple of days. We take justice into our own hands. Why are both of these scenarios true? Well, we want justice. It's in our hearts. And I believe then that It's fair to say that we find it easier to make war than we do to make peace. And so, often we wish that God would make war with others on our behalf. And because of that, we will sometimes justify our actions as biblical and right. And today, Jesus is going to address the religious teaching of his day that said, if we are personally offended, then revenge is appropriate. Look with me first at verse 38 of Matthew chapter 5 to get started. As as it is Jesus' custom, he begins here with what is the traditional view of the day. And verse 38 says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Many of us have heard this. In fact, some of us use it probably, but this statement of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a direct quote from three Old Testament passages. You can see it in Exodus chapter 21, you can see it in Leviticus 24, and you can see it in Deuteronomy 19. And these words represent the oldest law in the world, and some of you maybe have heard of it, but it's called lex talionis, which means law of retaliation. Jesus knows that the Pharisees of his day are using these passages from Exodus, from Leviticus, from Deuteronomy, to argue that Moses commanded and allowed personal vengeance. Moses commanded and allowed the law of retaliation in our personal lives. So I want to take just a minute here to understand what the Old Testament law was. What was the original text? Well, first, the law of retaliation was designed to limit vengeance. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was designed to limit vengeance. You might say, how? That sounds like vengeance. Well, its goal was to prevent personal revenge from taking over in situations. So in the ancient world, when Jesus was preaching this message, blood feuds were a very typical thing. Here's what would happen. A small infraction like trespassing would happen... And it would be met with a beating, which would then be paid back with murder, which would then be countered by generational genocide. 
One family gets into it with another family, and then generations later, they are still fighting with each other. And in our context, in in our day and age, we still talk about the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? When we think of a feud. And these types of blood feuds, they existed in the ancient world in Israel, and they perpetuated themselves. Your son trespasseth, I'm going to beat him, I'm going to kill your son. It just goes and goes and goes. And so the law of Moses, this law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it was intended to do away with these long-lasting fights. How? Well, it limited vengeance to the crime that was committed. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The other reality of the Old Testament law was this. The law was designed to be administered through the courts. As it exists in the Bible, the law of retaliation was given to the judges of Israel on the basis for resolution. So, individuals were actually not permitted to use the law to settle disputes with others. The courts administered vengeance. In that way, the penalties for the crimes were just and appropriate. As silly as this may sound, notice that it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, if somebody injures someone and it results in their loss of a tooth, the punishment should not be the equivalent to the loss of something more precious than the tooth, like an eye. And you may wonder right now why I'm spending so much time explaining the Old Testament law, but I think that it's important as we study Jesus' words today, because in Jesus' statement today, he isn't cutting down the value of the court system. He isn't cutting down the value of retribution. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with the law of retaliation, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The goal of the law was to ensure fairness and balance. It was to be applied without discrimination. And so Jesus does not oppose legal action. The issue was the manipulation that the law was under by the Pharisees. And that's why Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. Jesus never says, and you should notice this through all of his statements, he never says, you have read that it was written. He says, you have heard that it was said, these people are misapplying the law. The rabbis are teaching it wrongly. And so Jesus is opposed to the law being used to justify acts of personal revenge. Because that was never its intent. Jesus is saying the law isn't to be dragged into the personal arena where it fosters bitterness, it fosters vengeance, it fosters malice and hatred. The fact that the Pharisees are using the law to justify Personal vengeance is not okay. Personal vengeance is not and was never justified in God's moral law. In fact, I would go so far to say this. The Old Testament teaches against personal vengeance. And so Jesus says this in verse 39a. He says, this is the spirit of God's law. This is what God meant. The spirit of God's law is this. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So Jesus' response here is sweeping, and we read it, and we don't totally understand the context, and we live in a day and an age, uh, and, and so did the people of Jesus' day, that says this, if the bully on the playground is messing with you, then punch him in the face and he will leave you alone, right? And so Jesus' words here, they shock us, and they shock the people listening, because he says, do not resist the one who is evil, but here... 
he lays down another basic principle in his kingdom and says this, I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. What is Jesus saying? Is Jesus teaching us absolute non-resistance under any circumstance? I don't think so. We already established and addressed that the Bible supports measured justice. And Jesus isn't in contradiction to God's word. And so is Jesus calling us to personal passivism? I mean, what if someone is trying to physically attack me? Should I stand there and passively let them do it? What if someone is trying to break into my house? Should I unlock the door for them and then maybe just give them a key and come back and say, come back whenever you want to? Again, I would say no to those questions. I think that it's important for us to understand what Jesus is saying when he uses the word resist in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. When he says, do not resist, resist means to set oneself up in opposition to an evil person. In using this word resist and in the context that Jesus is preaching in, the people would have known that Jesus isn't saying that we should all become passive victims to evil. He does not mean that we are to refrain from defending our family or ourselves if someone seeks to do physical harm to us. And he definitely isn't saying don't call the police. And Jesus is not calling us to absolute passivism. In other words, this isn't a good passage to use in an effort to convince people to be Christian doormats. It's important for us not to absolutize Jesus' words without giving attention to their context, to the flow of his argument, and to the specific implications of the times. Remember, Jesus is speaking in the context of being salt and light. Jesus is speaking in the context of righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus is speaking in the context of what will make people see our unworldly behavior and praise our Father who is in heaven. And so the point that Jesus is trying to make here is this. My followers, my disciples, should not be marked by a spirit of revenge, but by a spirit of love. My followers should not be marked by a spirit of revenge, but by a spirit of love. You and I are not called to position ourselves as enemies of another person. We are not to set ourselves up as the personal enemy of a person who seeks to do evil to us. Or more simply, revenge should not mark the heart of a disciple of Jesus. Revenge should not mark the heart of a disciple of Jesus. The mindset that says, I don't get mad, I get even, is a foreign mindset to the ethics of Jesus. And he says to his followers, it should be foreign to those who follow him too. Jesus goes on then to clarify what he's saying with four one-sentence illustrations of what it means to not resist the one who is evil. And each of these illustrations is culturally specific, but I think that they can give those of us who follow Jesus general principles for today too. If you are a follower of Jesus, listen carefully this morning for how he might be talking to you. Let's first look at this statement on how followers of Christ respond to personal insult. So the very first thing is, how do we respond to personal insult? Verse 39b says this, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
We need to be careful here not to assume that Jesus is describing a personal attack or a physical attack. He isn't talking about being jumped in the street. Jesus is describing a calculated insult. How do we know? Because Jesus says, if somebody hits you on the right cheek, and what Jesus is describing here is what would be a backhanded slap. How do I know that? Well, most people are right-handed. If you're left-handed, I'm sorry, but most people are right-handed. And a right-handed person would use the back side of his hand to slap the person across from them on the right cheek, right? So just for context, according to rabbinic law, to hit someone with the back of the hand was twice as, insult- as insulting as hitting him with the flat of the front of your hand. The back of the hand meant this. It meant calculated contempt and withering disdain. It meant that you were scorned as inconsequential or nothing. It would be like for us being spit on. You're being degraded to nothing. And Jesus knows, all, knows this about all of us. Our dignity and our sense of personal honor is very important to us. But when Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, he tells us to set aside our rights to be respected and to even make ourselves vulnerable to be insulted again. And what this requires for his followers is it requires a death to self, doesn't it? But, But what it does is this, it places the person who strikes you in a position in which they must consider their actions. And it invites the other person to experience the same grace that you know. It is a very clear opportunity to witness to someone what the grace of God looks like. Ultimately, Jesus is calling his followers to set aside petty ways of getting even. It's not my responsibility as a follower of Christ to punish other people by returning their sins to them. Let me get just really practical for you because I think that it's probably pretty unlikely that you're going to get backhanded slapped today. Unless maybe, I don't know, maybe you're looking forward to this. But I think it's pretty unlikely. Let me get really practical with all of us for a second. How many of us do something like this? If our spouse is messy... We leave things messy in return. You don't have to raise your hand, but I actually am kind of curious. No, I'm just kidding. Or if your friend is late, you make sure that you're late next time to show them how it feels. Or if your brother or sister, and this one is to my girls, I only see one of them here though, but if your brother or sister, I see you, never lets you borrow their clothes, you don't allow them to borrow your stuff either. Because you have made it your mission to teach equity. In effect, this morning, Jesus is asking all of us who are his followers in turning the other cheek to make the other person and his or her well-being the center of your focus. We think of them and we adjust our actions according to what we think will point him or her to Jesus Christ. And then we do this, when we do this, we begin to affect them. Because vulnerable love brings spiritual awareness. 
Let me say that again. Vulnerable love brings spiritual awareness. How do I respond to personal insults? I turn the other cheek. Again, I don't believe, given the context here, that Jesus is calling us to refrain from protecting ourselves. Nor do I think that justice for those who commit violence crimes should be excused. The guiding principle here is this, that we are showing love, and sometimes love means that that person needs to meet the police. But justice and forgiveness are not mutually exclusive things, but the guiding principle here is showing love and putting away anger and putting away malice and putting away revenge. And again, Jesus is asking his disciples and you and me, what is in your heart? Jesus goes on then in verse 40 and he expands on what it looks like to respond with a spirit of love when he says, here is how you respond to being ripped off. Look at verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Again, cultural context is really important when we read the scriptures. In Jesus' day, you could literally sue someone for the shirt off their back. But no one could take your cloak for a permanent amount of time. What that meant was in the court of law, they could take your cloak for all day, but they had to give it back to you every single night. That was the law. Why? Well, because the cloak was used at night as bedding. And so the cloak was an indispensable part of living in Palestine. So even if you lost your tunic to someone in court and your opponent asked for your cloak, again, they would have to return it to you every single night. That was the law. And what is Jesus saying here then? Why is he telling people this? Is he referring to the average lawsuit? Is Jesus saying don't have anything to do with the court? Is Jesus saying that Christians should never have anything to do with lawyers? No. That's not his point. His point is to detect an attitude in his followers. And he is saying, are you quick to demand your rights? Are you quick to press your interests despite the needs of others? Or are you willing to forbear and forgo your own rights for the sake of the kingdom? The people would have known that Jesus was pushing on their rights. He was pushing at their rights. And this is a radical message because Jesus is saying, you need to think past the requirements of the law. You need to think past your personal rights. Why? Because the world needs to see me in you. Why? Because the world needs to know me. A radically unselfish attitude will amaze the world and will invite the blessing of God. And Jesus' statements here are supremely radical. Look with me for a second at Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, because it describes the same call and the same potential effect. It says, Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus goes on in Matthew 5, verse 41, to show more what it looks like to his disciples when he says, Here is how you respond to forced labor. 
Look at verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. We've probably all heard the phrase before, be willing to go the extra mile. In fact, it's probably something we teach our kids, be willing to go the extra mile. Go farther than you were asked to go. Verse 41 is that phrase's historical background. Israel was an occupied territory, right? We know that. Israel was an occupied territory by Rome. They were under Roman rule. And when Roman military wanted to, they could compel the people of Israel to assist them. You can actually see an example of this with Simon of Cyrene when he was forced to help carry Jesus' cross in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Something that we should know is that the Jews hated the practice of carrying a Roman soldier's stuff. Why? Because it publicly illustrated the humiliation of being a people that were subject to Rome. The phrase one mile means 1,000 paces, and so according to Jesus' illustration, you are legally required to assist a Roman soldier by carrying his load for 1,000 steps. But Jesus says, when you reach the limit of what, a Roman, what the Roman law requires, don't stop and drop the burden. Keep going. Carry the load another mile. Do it voluntarily, not for the Roman king, but for the king of, he- king of heaven. Obligation dictates the first mile. Compassion directs the second. In this illustration, the Roman soldier would have no doubt been shocked, right? Because Jewish people hated this law. He would have wondered, why would you want to serve him? You hate being under my authority. You're my enemy, the Roman soldier would have thought. And this service isn't required. You've already met the requirements of the law. This kind of response to a hardened soldier would most definitely have caused the soldier to say this, what is with this guy? This person has something that I do not understand. If I was a Roman soldier, I would have told him, you don't get rollover miles, okay? Next time I ask you, you still have to carry my stuff. Then the people might have thought, this is ridiculous, Jesus. Why are you telling us to do this? This is crazy. This is impractical. But if you look at the history of Rome, this is actually how Rome was won by Christians. Radically righteous people who possessed radical joy even when they were not treated fairly. That kind of joy calls everyone's hearts upward. Once again, Jesus pushes on the rights of the people when he says, go the extra mile. He is pushing on their rights and he's saying, don't stand on your rights, go the extra mile. Jesus then finishes his call to being unworldly for the world with a command to respond to the needy. In verse 42, he says, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not receive or refuse the one who would borrow from you. Is Jesus saying give to every freeloader and panhandler that comes your way? I don't think so. Again, I think the context here really matters because in Jesus' day, a Jewish person would have rather died than to beg. And this means that Jesus is talking about people who are asking for something because they are legitimately in need. And Jesus says, the one before you has almost lost all hope. Don't lecture them. Feed them. 
Don't shame them. Share with them what God has given you without expecting anything in return. Notice that this verse doesn't say give to people whatever they ask for from you. It says give to the one who begs you. And there are many requests that we cannot fulfill. And there are many requests that we should not fulfill. We are called to ask good questions and have discernment for sure, but the point is not to call out our discernment. Jesus is again calling us to look at our hearts, to look at the rights we stand on, and and he's asking, do you respond to those in distress with generosity and charity, or are you doing it in a grudging way? Do we give thinking, do you know how much I, how fun I could have had with that money I gave away? Or how many better ways I could have spent that money? Or do we lend selflessly for the benefit of others, knowing that everything we have was given to us by God anyway? Spurgeon wrote this, be generous, a miser is no follower of Jesus. I think that's a pretty clear way to say it. Jesus is saying, my followers reject a tight-fisted, penny-pitching attitude that says, that is mine and I will never share it. Because again, what Jesus is doing is he's stepping on our rights and he's asking us to share our stuff for the good of others. So that's the passage for today. And again, I think we're left with some questions, like we always are. What do we do with Jesus' teaching? How am I to live a life that honors God in this world? What is Jesus calling me to specifically? And one question that I came up with at the end of studying this week is, how does this passage make me feel? (laughs) Which is a dangerous question. But I hear a message like this, and I don't know about you guys, I hear a message like this from Jesus and I get anxious. Here's why. Because I believe Jesus, I know what Jesus is saying is true, I know that he's calling me to a higher calling and a better life, but something deep down inside of me makes me want to lean on my own dignity, and on my own rights, and on my own autonomy, and on my possessions. And Jesus calls every single one of those things into view in today's passage. And this is hard. I'll just speak for myself. This is hard for me. I love justice. Especially when it's on somebody else. I hate injustice. Anybody else? I hate it when the world's not just. I hate when gas prices rise. I hate all of that stuff. And I could talk about it all day with you guys. And I think as Americans, and I can only speak to us as Americans, who knows how everybody else feels, that we should be able, we feel like we should be able to stand on our dignity, we should be able to stand on our rights, we should be able to stand on our autonomy, and we should be able to stand on our possessions. And yet in each one of Jesus' statements today, he calls me to forgiveness, sacrifice, service, and generosity. Christ's answer to revenge is forgiveness. Christ's answer to self-protection is sacrifice. Christ's answer to imposition is service. And Christ's answer to greed is generosity. 
Why? Is it so that we can be Christian doormats? No, it's so that the world will know him. And once again, this passage this morning, just like all of Jesus' words, require a radical new way of thinking. How do we get to this way of thinking for God's glory? How do we get to this way of thinking for the good of the people in our life that need Jesus? I have two things for us. Being unworldly for our world means that our rights are left at the cross. Being unworldly for our world means that our rights are left at the cross. This morning, Jesus is saying that love is abandoning your rights for the sake of the kingdom and for the good of others. Well, how do I do that, Robbie? Consider Jesus who laid aside his own rights and privileges for us. He himself gave us an example to follow. Look at Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You can own this as a believer. You can have this in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider or count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, sorry, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thanks to Jesus, we can look at the cross and let go of our legalistic obsession with fairness. Thanks to Jesus, we can look at the cross and let go of our legalistic obsession with fairness. Think about this with me for a second. Aren't you glad that Jesus was not fair with you? Aren't aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't stand on his rights? If Jesus was fair with us, we would be in huge trouble. And as followers of Jesus, we get to give ourselves, hear me clearly, we get to give ourselves to the highest welfare of others, even if there are enemies. We get to put up with the sins and the insults of others for Christ's sake and for theirs. Don't understand me wrong. It may hurt. But we will refuse to withdraw into a shell of ourselves. We do not run from hurt. Just as Jesus did, we appear weak to the world around us, but we are strong. Because only followers of Jesus can live an empowered life like this. But that power is not ours, it is Christ's. You may be thinking, well, this doesn't sound like a good life. (laughs) Can I just say to you, like I do so often that you will always find your greatest joy when you live in full dependence upon Jesus Christ. You will always find your greatest joy when you live to honor God because that is what you were created for. And when you serve because Jesus himself said he didn't come to be served but to serve, you will always be joyful when you do not stand on your rights for the sake of Jesus Christ.
And this, again, is not, Jesus is not inviting us into this dull, exhausting life. Jesus is once again giving you and I an invitation into an abundant life. Our rights are left at the cross, but how do we do this? Give me something practical. Pray. Ask God to do this in you. Jesus' words today are hard. In fact, I'm going to put them in the category of impossible. And I have to say that I am so glad that they are impossible. Because they require you and I to depend on Christ. If you want to walk with Him, then you need to ask Him to do it in you. Ask God to work in you a surpassing righteousness so that you do not hold on to your rights. So that you do not always insist on others being fair to you. So that you are willing to be hurt. So that you are willing to be vulnerable. Because then, just as in the Roman world long ago, people will notice and they will come to Jesus Christ because of your testimony. This isn't a goal to enjoy being abused. The goal is so that people will see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much again for your word. And God, even when it's hard, we're just so grateful for the high calling.